0: venue here. I, I hope that everybody here who wanted to get a greatest copy of this book succeeded in doing it, or will succeed if there are any left. And um, as we build this, the last session was more formal and uh, and had the an official set of commentators who've now gone off to their respective Institutions, and this is the time slot where, among other things, American politics, graduate students, be. and I would think that American politics graduate students might be interested in a in a new, and important work on, on a foundational document, uh, the, the American Constitution. So this is just a this is a conversation, a aq and and A, a Q and answer, a Q and A, a Q and A. a, Q and a, a, Q and a. Um, session, but Bob, you, did a, you, you wrote a few notes, so I think it suggests that maybe you've got some opening.
1: Well, I thought uh, some, my interrupting. You? No, no. Uh, uh, I, if you are it's thought really good. Uh, maybe just some uh, throwing out some thoughts, <clears throat> because one of the things I don't do in the in the book really is to say, well, what do we do about all of this? What is the problem? Uh, so, if just. These are just—I won't say random thoughts, but some thoughts. Let me just toss them out, and they may help us to uh, may help to uh, concentrate the discussion or diffuse it, as the case may be, uh, on thinking about innovations in a given a constitutional system, where, in my pessimistic view, the likelihood of actually altering the constitution itself is, for the reasons I set out in the book. Extremely low, so we may be stuck with it no matter, no matter what at some point. And um, I want to begin by calling attention to what seemed to me a the 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 uh, the uh, opportunities for experimentation that we have not sufficiently uh, exploited uh, in this uh, country. I think that we might. Take the medical model here, which has a lot of cautionary uh, uh, criteria also in experimentation. But uh, you will recall, at least some of you will know, that uh, uh, Justice Brandeis, uh, 75 or more years ago, 80 years ago, uh, called upon the use of the states as laboratories for experimentation, learning about things from possible experiments in the in, in the states. And yesterday, for those of you who were here, Akil Ambar, colleague in the uh, colleague in the, in the law school, mentioned uh, something that he's written, which I think you may want to look at. Is is about the great diversity in the states and the extent to which they are own federal states and the extent to which they do diverge from the national model uh, in in many important ways. Uh, All I'm I'm doing here is reiterating what Brandeis said uh, 80 years ago about the possibility of more deliberate attempts more systematic attempts at experimentation. Let me mention a few things that I'm sure are highly, uh, will be highly controversial. I've emphasized uh, and I emphasize in, in the book that rights and liberties require not only opportunities. In order to be exercised, they also require resources, a, a rights without the appropriate resources, is uh, as meaningless as it would be without the appropriate enforcement opportunities on the part of of the state. And some years back, on several occasions, an intriguing idea was thrown out, among others, uh, by by, uh, the political scientist uh, uh, Jim Fishkin, James Fishkin, and I'll say more about another idea of his in a moment, whether there might not be some... some, uh, uh, a provision uh, prior to campaigns, during campaigns, uh, for citizens a minimum entitlement of of economic resources that could be used only uh, in uh, for uh, allocating to uh, to candidates. It would be the equivalent of your vote but it would be a resource which could be cashed in by the candidate and used for a for, uh, candidate, thus arming ordinary citizens with a minimum amount of, of uh, resources. Uh, they uh, uh, might be vouchers, for example. Now, I don't know whether that is a really great idea. It's very tempting, but isn't that something that we could experiment with? It's only, it seems to me, as in medicine, an equally, perhaps, complex field. I think politics is the most complex field of of that of the, of the human beings participate in. And I think it's, it's sometimes only by means of practical trial and error that we really can begin to understand whether something will work as we intended. or not, just as in medicine. The, 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 the same thing in a highly complex field. I throw that out. Finally, And Fred reminded me of this this morning. I have for many years been quite charmed by Jim Fishkin's uh, deliberative Polls. I had in a a book called After the Revolution many years ago in in an obscure passage suggested something like that. Uh, Quite independently, Jim took it up and what's more, he acted on it. Now, um, and I just want to mention this to you. Uh, The uh, A couple of years ago, I uh, suggested in an article that I believe was published in in Dissent, something of the following format on, let's say, the problem of medical care, a central serious problem in the United States. We start, this is not a part of, of Fishkin's format, but I'll come to that. We start with a committee of the National Academy of Sciences. Now, this is the legal responsibility of the National Academy of Sciences to respond to presidential requests for scientific information on issues of of any kind posed by the president. But instead of the usual procedure of fighting for a consensus, so you come out with a report on a single recommendation they be instructed that they must come out with a report that describes the advantages and disadvantages of at least the two major alternatives, and perhaps only the two major alternatives, so that you have the alternatives posed. Every public policy, as we know, has, has a possible alternative, or virtually everyone does, so that you have the beginning, then, of a structure for discussion. Here are two alternatives carefully thought out by the committee of the National Academy of Sciences. You then go to the deliberative poll and let's say, I know this is going to sound utopian, but we need to be thinking creatively, Uh, a deliberative poll in every single state. I recently sat in for a morning on a deliberative poll in New Haven, which Fishkin came up on some issues, came up to supervise on some issues that are of local importance, and the residual effects of that have been quite significant. What is it, for those of you who haven't um, delved into this, what is a deliberative poll? A in a deliberative poll, let me go back one, one step. The problem of, of sample surveys as a source of opinion is that they are not preceded by deliberation, so they are a body of often of uninformed citizens. And the problem often of deliberations is they're not representative. They're not a random sample. You combine these two features in a deliberative poll where you select ideally, and it's not always possible to do this because it's terribly expensive, you select uh, four or five hundred people randomly, check to make sure that they are a representative sample of the population, and he's done this uh, now in, in Britain um, three or four times. He's uh, recently done it in uh, in Sweden, and I think he's about to do it in Denmark. He's done it in the United States a number of times. And you bring them together uh, for, let's say, three days. It's not very long, uh, but for three days, let's say. They come together on Friday night. They break down into groups of 15 to 20 with a trained uh, moderator, uh, and they discuss the issue. The one I remember seeing his uh, his videotape of was one in England on crime, Britain on crime some years ago. And they break down into these groups of the modern, and they begin to discuss the, the, the question. Then the next morning, let's say that Saturday morning, they uh, meet as, uh, as a group, and there's a panel, or maybe they meet again in their smaller groups and discuss it further. Then there's a panel of... of uh, advocate experts, people who know a lot about this but who disagree. So there's not a uniform presentation there. And these can be, they can be people who are really quite prominent in their field but who disagree about this. And they uh, question the experts and they have by then often, it appears, uh, certainly from this video, that members of the audience have begun to gain some confidence that they can pose uh, good questions. Uh, so this this goes on. They may then meet, on, um, let's say Sunday morning, with further discussions Saturday afternoon, through dinner. Saturday night, through the evening, and then on, let's say on Sunday morning, they may may meet with representatives of the of the political parties. And I remember, am stuck in my in my mind in the videotape of the one on crime in Britain, uh, seeing. The representative of the Conservative Party, and they panned in on him as he was coming into this group, this representative group. And there was that sort of upper class uh, mm-hmm. uh, look on his face, <laughs> as if he were saying, here's an audience uh, that I can handle. They, you know, they don't know much about this. <laughs> well, it was amazing. <laughs> that within half an hour they had that guy on the ropes because by then they knew the, the, the questions that, were, the, 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 that they wanted. And they probed and they probed and they probed. It was a very interesting kind of work. And the labor one was the young Tony Blair. The labor uh, guy was this attractive young man called Tony Blair, <laughs> who, of course, won over the audience immediately. But, uh, the, now, Jim at uh, uh, Piskin will take a survey of their attitudes when they come. Then he takes a survey of their beliefs about this when they leave. And you get changes. Uh, You get uh, uh, changes in uh, in attitudes. I had, on this particular one, quite recently talking to him, I said, the one thing I remember about that, yes, there were significant changes on attitudes towards how you deal with crime. But I noticed that, whatever it was, 65% of the... People in your survey came in believing in the death penalty and 65 percent left believing in the death penalty, from which I would concluded no opinion change, that there are some things you just that are so deeply held. You don't change opinions. I was talking to him quite recently. He said they had done a, a reanalysis of that, and it turns out there was opinion change. Uh, It was a small percentage let's say 10 or 15% who changed but they changed in opposite directions. (laughs) So even attitudes that are that deeply held can be uh, altered over. I want to mention one more thing I've suggested to him and he's not had a chance to do this yet. When these people go back to their communities my sense is that they are that they're different. It's a little bit like Traveling to a country you've never been to before, but you all of you know this, you come back and you never quite look at the news about that country in the same way. You've got a scaffolding, a framework on which to uh, uh, to uh, peg things and uh, and the curiosity about it. And I think they go back into their communities and I think they would probably remain. We, we don't know this yet, and this is a study I'd like to see uh, done. Anyway... I can imagine then, and I'm within three minutes of finishing up here, I can imagine that uh, we start out with the National Academy of Sciences uh, report, two major alternatives on medical care, let's say. Uh, we have one of these in every state. We then have a, one a national uh, a deliberative uh, a poll of this kind. And then, of course, you can't, you can't prevent the debate from already having begun. beginning. But then the then the political debate really begins. That's when, it seems to me, the uh, ideally you've got a public out there, or parts of a public who are reasonably well informed about this, and the political debate begins. And then, again, the alternatives are canvassed, and you, you uh, settle it. Now, I just throw that out. Um, and all that I want to really to urge you to... All of us uh, to think about is: uh, Can't we be more more innovative? Can't we be more more experimental, in a in a, in a cautious and careful way, uh, following the medical model? Do no harm. Uh, on the other hand, there are possibilities of uh, of improving the operation of our political uh, system within the constraints even set by the constitution. Enough.
0: Okay comments, questions, there were some things some hands that were still up when I cut things short last time. Don's got a question. I
2: was going to ask if you thought that Hillary would have done better had she tried that strategy. I think she
1: would have done better if she had tried almost any strategy. She <laughs> that was a disaster, wasn't it? Yeah, I think. Don, that's actually taking your question seriously. Yes. Yes. I think that would have been an ideal circumstance sort of in which to try to get a sense of
3: what was possible. Yes, thanks. Patrick, you
0: were.
4: I guess, you know, striking the, the Fishkin uh, model, uh, both suggest a great promise of, of a kind of democratic deliberation, but the great limits of that kind of deliberation in, in a nation of the size and uh, the vast expanse of, of the United States and you know the foreign country I think that these people went to was called democracy, uh, and they came from whatever it is we want to call the United States. Uh, you you pointed in your, uh, in your conclusion that the distinction between the term democracy and republic, and it's a uh, it's a difficult one to, to tease out. But um, I, I think um, you know taking to a certain extent the Federalists as a guide uh, in this distinction. Um, democracy is much more akin to what Fishkin's doing in that room which is not just that we're going to vote but it involves a whole series of <coughs> deliberations discussion that precedes a vote mm-hmm. um, and I guess what's striking about about having now read much of uh, much of your book is although I think you're, you're ginger and gin, tentative about wanting to propose too radical a change uh, to the constitutional system you say uh, you know we Obviously, I've some respect for this, 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 old, this old document. Uh, how much, actually, of the framers' suppositions you actually accept in this book, um, particularly the, the, what, the, the core distinctions that, that Madison and Hamilton are like, want to draw between this classical form of democracy and this what they call a new kind of republic, namely that it would be a vast nation, right? In Federalist 10, they make that argument, uh, and that it would have a form of representation. Uh, and those are really two things that you never really question in in this book, Uh, and it seems to me those two features, as they're constituted now and as you largely leave them to be constituted in proposals, (coughs) still uh, uh, exert a tremendous limitation to uh, the actual functioning of democracy, as you're suggesting that Fishkin's model would, uh, would uh, again, it's a poll; It's not an actual uh, deliberation of the entire of the population. So I guess it seems to me, I, mean, I, I guess I'm sort of echoing some of the things that Professor McWilliams was saying yesterday, but there's, there's, it seems to me there's a kind of neglect of a kind of political culture uh, that has to accompany uh, a kind of robust, robust form of democracy the kind that you're talking about largely in institutional terms. I was wondering
1: if that... Uh, sure, that raises, I think, a lot of interesting questions. I've had a a, a long interest in uh, the uh, consequences of scale. In fact, the little book that Ed Tufton and I did together on size of democracy many years ago reflected in part of that, and it also reflected the fact that I was then engaged in what turned out to be in a formal sense, in the Boarding Project, working uh, closely with four others and, uh, and uh, less closely with uh, uh, a, a total of about 12 uh, European scholars on the smaller European democracies. And the question that came, came up there, uh, of which there are about 10, uh, smaller 10 to 12 smaller European uh, democracies, if you run through the list. Uh, what difference does it make? What difference does scale make. Uh, And uh, somewhat to my disappointment, that uh, issue has never been adequately, uh, I think, adequately uh, explored. I'm going to say one more point and then then come back uh, perhaps to something of greater relevance. I was recently uh, reading the manuscript of a faculty member who I don't happen to know at the University of Vermont who clearly not only is deeply in love with his state of Vermont, but he's deeply in love with the town meeting. And he, is, and he and his students, who I suppose were probably mainly undergraduates, had sat in over a number of years on something like fifteen or 1,600 town meetings uh, recording participation of what was going on and, and, uh, and mm-hmm. the like. And... Uh, one of, the, one of his, his uh, findings there is that even within the range of Vermont town size, and some of the bigger towns have abandoned the town meeting, but uh, even within that range, the, there is a difference in the attitudes that he found in his surveys, and they look pretty good to me, among citizens that varies with the size of the, of the town. And what we're talking about is differences between a town, let's say, of a thousand, a town of five hundred, and a town of a hundred. And the smaller that you get, the more confidence people have. It seems obvious. seems intuitively obvious. But who else has made that kind of finding? That that uh, that they can participate, that they can be a part of the of the town, they can be influential, and in what they say has some some meaning. Now, to go back to the, your central point yes, as we as as, as we all know, the, in the late eighteenth uh, uh, century, this discovery, this uh, invention in which uh, people who favored the democratic republican government uh, began to see that that aristocratic institution of representation elected representatives, if joined, to the democratic idea of the people governing could provide for a whole new kind of political system it would be different from the Roman Republic, it would be different from the Venetian Republic, it would be different from all of the republics of, 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 of uh, uh, late medieval and renaissance uh, uh, Italy, uh, it would be different from the Venetian from as I just said the, the, the Venetian uh, Republic and, and the others Uh, It was a new form. It was a new form. They saw that. Clearly, we take it so utterly for granted now that we hardly think about it. It was a new form that then, therefore, required a whole new set of institutions that had never existed before in their entirety. This doesn't mean that there hadn't been pale shadows of them that existed. But if you take the institutions of modern representative democracy... We all know that. (laughs) That's a radically different transformation of the political institutions of democratic systems from those of all previous regimes, especially the the Greek Uh, city-states. The existence, for example, which the men at the Constitutional Convention were somewhat unhappy with, the existence of political parties, competitive political parties, if we were to look around the world today and find a country in which you didn't have competitive political parties, we would say almost certainly <laughs> it's not democratic. Uh, uh, the, the represent elected uh, uh, representatives themselves in, in reasonably free and fair uh, elections, the guarantees of freedom of speech. You could argue that that had existed for a part of the population in all of these countries, and among Athenian males certainly. Uh, for all of them the existence of political associations of other kinds and the enfranchisement ultimately by the by the end of this uh, recently uh, in the last century of, of um, almost all, all adults all of that is new all of that is, very, is is very new and it requires therefore I think and I think this may have been the thrust of your question an attention to the f- profound fact that democracy, as we tend to label it today, uh, uh, representative democracy, is is a large-scale system. Now, I just want to go, and, and we have to face that, that things that are possible in small-scale systems are <laughs> not possible in large-scale systems, especially gigantic-scale systems like the United States. Clearly, it requires, among other things, is, again, perfectly obviously, requires decentralization of many decisions to smaller units of various kinds, both economic and and uh, political. But when I went back, when I was mentioning uh, the uh, the Fishkin uh, deliberative poll, uh, what I suggested there was the possibility, which has never been done. It would be expensive, but but infinitesimally small compared with campaign uh, campaign expenditures uh, would that we would decentralize i would have one in each of 50 states that would spend three or four days together discussing this issue so that there would be not only a group of informed citizens resulting from their participation in the poll but because of the coverage in the local press and i can tell you about this because i saw this happening in New Haven, in the New Haven area uh, press, uh, uh, during and after the deliberative poll there, because of the coverage there, you begin to stimulate a wider discussion. It's not a totally satisfactory answer. It's not everybody being involved, but it helps. And it seems to me, I don't think we would be worse off. And I think we would be better off <laughs> with something of that kind. It's an attempt to to accommodate to the to the dilemmas posed by the huge scale of modern representative government. <laughs> there may, I mean, I really call upon all of you here, faced with that problem, to be creative and.
4: I'm just struck that you begin the book by questioning the, 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 whether we should accept everything in the wisdom of the framers. Yeah. But in fact, we're, we're, this is part of that inheritance. I, I don't think you have to accept it as a given or a fact of nature. So a series of political decisions and conclusions that were made uh, about what this nation would look like. And it seems to me to begin, I mean, one has to begin with a rude acknowledgement that is the fact of life, but simply say, throw up your arms and say, well, that, that, we just have to accept it, uh, I think minimizes the extent to, or, or shades the extent to which that was, those were a series of political decisions that were made at the time. Uh, that no, I, that I, when I began your book, I yeah. thought, aha, we're really going to get into it now. Uh, he's right. going to reveal the extent to which... Everything, much of our inheritance is a result of decisions that were made by the framers.
5: Well, Uh, I agree.
4: I thought you, in a way, pulled back from the full extent of of the critique that might have been launched.
1: Well, I think the only, perhaps the only difference between us uh, may be that uh, we both acknowledge that the framers saw the challenge of transferring the Republican idea to this. Already huge territory and, and population that they virtually all knew would become even even bigger that was the challenge that they, they faced uh, and given the limitations under which they worked I think what they achieved was quite extraordinary but the point I want to make is that we don't have to be remain forever fixed by what they sought at the time for example, I don't want to be too rude you, uh you, they were hostile to the idea of political parties. And yet, it was James Madison himself who, together with Jefferson, created what I've sometimes called the first mass party in, in the world. That's perhaps a slight exaggeration, but it's, it's not too far off the mark. They began to discover things that were required uh, in a popular republic, which they probably couldn't have foreseen uh, and that were not a part of their thoughts when they were except maybe to prevent it from happening, as in the Federalist number ten uh, when they were designing the constitution so it, it isn't that in any way they were uh, i I have great admiration for them, but they were inherently limited by the lack of experience of precisely the kind. Which you pointed to with this new political form uh, that had not hitherto existed in that way anywhere in the world throughout all of previous human history. it was a, it was a new form. Yes? Um, I
4: guess I'd like to ask
6: the inverse of Don Moon's question, uh, which is, um, can you imagine any concrete areas of public policy uh, that would move in what we today would call a conservative direction
0: uh, if there were to be uh, the sort of reforms you're talking about, uh, a movement towards um, what
6: what you would call more democratic deliberation. I think of re- recent initiatives in California and things like that, and it seems that all the examples you give are envisaging successes sure. for a particular program. And I'm also saying this mindful of the sort of Tension amongst political progressives in this idea of democracy. There are certain times when it's very appealing to them, and sure. historically there are times when they draw away from it because sure. once they get it, uh, there are sure. often real policy implications.
1: No, I think there is, after all, the country is as much conservative as it is liberal. Elections uh, election service. No, there will be times then when the upshot of that would be movement in the conservative direction. Well, that's that's what we who disagree with the majority would the price that we would pay. But what's important to me is that there throughout be maintained steadily the opportunity if and as people change their mind then to change the policy. And it may go at one time in one direction, it may go at one time in another. Yes.
6: But you, you were willing to make a prediction for him <laughs> that his well, health care thing... L- let me just let me say, say i a prediction as to maybe one issue area that you think uh, would go in the opposite or, or well, not.
2: But along these lines, I mean, can you say a little bit more about the mechanisms through which you think the change is happening? Because I didn't actually mean would it necessarily <laughs> have been that a national health plan would have come through. I meant would it... If we think about the de- debacle of that period, we see the policy process that was secret, that was brought out into the open, that uh, led to a process of deliberation that no one could think of as whatever your values it's being as being you know well thought out, and then a policy outcome through the development of managed care and so forth, it was totally at variance with the expectations of everybody who was a participant in the system all along. So I took it that your argument would be that some mechanism involving the deliberative polling would improve the quality of the deliberative process within representative institutions. That was my thought. Yeah, exactly. And so, how exactly would that happen? And then I think that would tend to speak to this question of whether it would tend to be systematically biased in one kind of progressive or non progressive kind of direction. I don't think I don't think it would be any
1: more systematically biased in one direction or another than public opinion. that is is fairly properly uh, done uh, as. We as then altered, insofar as it alters through reflection and an opportunity to investigate. I can't predict that. I don't know what uh, direction it would go in on particular issues. I'm prepared to accept that verdict if it is deliberated on thoughtfully. I don't see any alternative to. Deciding on fundamental public policies, any better alternative than decisions on fundamental public policies that affect the lives of the the great many people who are subject to them, then their opportunity to reflect what their interests are, what the consequences of those policies are, and then. to act as best they can, and representative institutions that obviously will mean acting in some way through <coughs> representative institutions. But I don't, I don't see a better alternative to that. Uh, whether it's the the Supreme Court uh, or whether it is some other uh, body, I would not. The last thing I would ever want, for example, is the faculty. Yale University, or the Yale Medical School, or Princeton University, making these decisions, or any equivalent thereof. I don't know. I don't know how that deals with your question,
2: uh, Don, or not. Well, I mean, I think that one one thought one might have that would relate to Ken's point is is that the access to the political process in a representative structure isn't equal, and that a deliberative kind of polling mechanism would produce. Would would uh, heighten or amplify some voices mm-hmm. within the society mm-hmm. more than they would amplify others because the others already have a lot of amplification, yeah. mm-hmm. and so therefore it would tend to perhaps mm-hmm. shift uh, pr- create more authority for the uh, views of working class people say or or less well educated disadvantaged people uh, because the structure is made to simulate what a democracy ideally would look like and therefore give it a kind of legitimacy that it might not otherwise have. So if that's the mechanism through which would affect policy inputs, then it would appear that that, uh, it it might have a systematic policy uh, implication. Well, I think
1: that's an interesting... It would be different. I, I think we can guess that it would be different as a result of that, for the reasons that you suggested that people who who have little influence on public policy might through this gain more at least indirect influence on public policy i 'm going to tell you a, tell you a story which I just heard the other day from my friend uh, Ian Shapiro who 's been interviewing <coughs> uh, people in Washington on the uh, uh, the uh, uh, what do I say? The, the, the schedule, the gradual repeal of the uh, of the uh, inheritance tax, the death tax, as it's opponents called it. And uh, as some of you know, the the black caucus supported that repeal. That's puzzling. Uh, why did they do so? As Vestian has found out in his interviews so far. And uh, he talked to uh, a man who is uh, an African-American, a multimillionaire, perhaps the greatest multimillionaire, who said that he spoke to the caucus, and he said to them something like the following. For the first time, we in the African-American community, black community, whichever language you use, have now some rich people and we for the first time are in a position to use our wealth for the benefit of our own people if we choose to do so and the the death tax, the inheritance tax would prevent us from doing that uh, now, uh, how much of this is self-interest, how much is broader, I don't know but the argument sufficiently appealed to the Black Caucus, which is ordinarily, as we all know, quite liberal, that they came out solidly in favor of the repeal uh, of the tax. The, I, 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 I use that illustration to show that all, the outcomes are quite unpredictable. I can't say that they acted irrationally. I, I I happen to think that's <laughs> bad public policy to eliminate the inheritance uh, uh, tax. Uh, but nonetheless, I I can't say that they w- were, were, uh, were uh, totally mistaken in this. And my, my only point here is that I think there's an element of unpredictability. I think Don's point is very good. You give the voice to people who hitherto lacked it. But whether they would come out in some of the directions that you and I would want, Don, uh, all the time is not altogether clear. <laughs> yes.
2: I'm, I'm missing something basic here, and, and I guess the best way of putting it is, can you tell us what the disease is that the Fishkin pill is supposedly a cure to?
1: Yes, it is the lack of deliberation.
2: So is it, it's exclusively process-based? It's not your, your agnostic about outcomes and whether they improve or
1: not? It's exclusively process-based.
2: So you just want to get people to participate
1: you don't want to get them to no. You don't just want them to get participate more. You want to get them to participate, having greater understanding of the issues. It's an attempt to get at the problem of civic competence, of how, of of the difficulties of a in, in the in the present day world of all of us, but certainly of, of of many citizens who are less privileged than we are in the access to information and understanding, uh, to gain a greater understanding of the issues, and where their own interests in the broadest sense of that term, their values, uh, their beliefs, their, their hopes, their aspirations, and their narrower interests as well, where they would fit into matters of public policy. But that's the intention of it.
2: Okay, that, that helps, but I'm still a little bit unclear. Is it possible to define something like civic competence Independent from
1: outcomes, I think so. I would think um, I would. And we, uh, in fact, I think you have to define it. I would want to define it independent of outcomes. I think confidence is is a uh, is is a product of, uh, of, of 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 learning, of gaining an understanding. In this case, of what the issues are. And then making making a choice a decision within those. That's common. Uh, the uh, you can retrospectively uh, say, and maybe you could have enough evidence, but it would always become highly controversial. But retrospectively, you can say, well, that was a bad decision on their part. They thought they were acting in their interest, but they weren't. But I don't think prospectively you can do that safely. I think that. If citizens participate in politics, to put it in the most modest form, I think they're better off, and the country is better off, if they know something about the issues
0: and how it affects them than if they don't. Let me give an indicator of competence that actually the citizen in question is the President Mm -hmm. of the United States. Not everybody felt in the early months of the George W. Bush presidency that he was showing a high degree of competence, for example, and asked questions which he bespoke himself on. And so on. I happened to be out of the country in October. When I came back, somebody gave me a videotape of his first uh, really formal press conference, which was one month after the 9 11 events and was in the East Room. And I had, being a professional president watcher, I had. Scrutinized his responses and photo ops and so on, and they, they often were kind of throwaway lines and little jokes and evasivenesses. And typically, he would say a few things. If anybody saw the debates with Gore, would remember that often he, uh, uh, he'd respond to a question with 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 a one sentence answer, and you'd sort of wait for some elaboration, and there wasn't any. And I thought this was a new human being. He. Uh, uh, he'd be asked a question and he, in fact, I then printed out all its press conferences and the indicator was that uh, in the immediate aftermath of, of having immersed himself, obviously with a new sense of dedication and a deliberative process, in this case not a so much a democratic one as a policy-making process. He's asked a question. The transcript runs four or five paragraphs instead of one paragraph. And if you maybe somewhat subjectively coded for nuggets of information, he would keep saying new new things suggested that that he'd been immersed in specifics. And and I've watched some of these Fishkin tapes, and you – you see, people who've been through this process who are debating something like the flat tax, mm-hmm. and, they're, and they're actually summoning up uh, you know, concepts and information, and, and they're not just responding to the notion that, sure, it would be great if everybody was taxed at the same level.
1: If I could just add something that maybe I've had a better response to you. Uh, There is, I think, a substantive substantive answer of Mm -hmm. the kind that Fred gave. If you test people after at how much they know about the issue, you would, I think, be likely to come to the conclusion that they are more competent in that sense. They simply know more. But it is not as if there is an answer out there that you can say is the appropriately competent answer, but you can say these people know more about it than they did before, so that they
2: can handle that issue better. Follow up on, on this. Uh, so, so the I mean, I, 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 had essentially a similar question as as one Keith asked, but but <coughs> given your answer, I was wondering whether you feel that part of the problem is that there's an unmet demand for increased confidence by people, or is that there's not enough demand for confidence, and we have to sort of increase people's desire to be. More? Uh,
1: empirically I don't know my, my hunch would be that it's a second I, I don't know that they're I think it's mixed and I just don't know the answer to that uh, but I don't see any great uh, overwhelming pressures or any great overwhelming demand but this is, this is something that I'd, I'd want to know more about based again on, on, the, on the closer uh, uh, understanding of what, what people are actually saying about themselves I suspect there are people out there who do feel that they need to know more. It's difficult. I think there are others who are probably quite complacent about how the much they do know. I would, if I'm somewhat cynical mode here, I think that some of the people who know at least about politics are those who are most confident that they know a lot about it. If I may just make a, a uh, perhaps I think it's an irrelevant article. I have thought for a long time that American businessmen are the most poorly informed people about uh, what is in their long-run self-interest of any group in the United States. They know a great deal about their short-run self-interest. And the reason I say that, it goes back to Franklin Roosevelt and the hatred that the business community had for Franklin Roosevelt. And what they didn't understand is he was saving capitalism. They never... That simple notion, here's a man who is saving capitalism, and they saw him as a radical communist socialist. There's a naivete that persists down to the present time on these people who in some respects are extremely well-informed, but their political judgments of what's in their long-run self-interest I think is often extremely naive. Yes? Uh, On several occasions
5: yesterday and a few occasions today, um, You rooted your commitment to uh, equal equal political resources or equal political rights in the notion that each individual is the best judge of their own self-interest, and that that judgment is better than the collective judgment made by others. However, that's exactly the same logic that conservatives and libertarians use to want to limit the role of uh, majority rule and to put limits on state action. So why? Why is your interpretation of that premise uh, the more reasonable one uh,
1: to Well, that's really a question. Uh, there, 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 I should say there are two premises, as you know. The other one is a moral premise. It's not just that. It's right. The, well, the, the, people are the, the same moral
5: premise that people are the moral premise was that people uh or morally mm-hmm. equal and mm-hmm. they're also the judge of their exactly. 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 collective exactly. judgment. No that I'm
1: sure that's shared by some people whose policy positions are different from mine.
5: But, but it also explains differences in and sort of roles of what role all the states should play, what the what, uh, mm-hmm. limits of the majority rule mm-hmm. should be. So they're that, that more than just simple policy differences. It's taking the same okay. sure. premise, coming to different conclusions sure. about the value yes. of democracy and yeah. protecting those, uh, those premises. Well,
1: that certainly is part of it. I, that's, uh, I think it's an interesting uh, and important question. It's a part of it. And I think there also are uh, important differences over what uh, what can be accomplished feasibly and reasonably efficiently by government and what cannot Uh, there is uh, this has been something I've been interested in actually since my graduate student days. and my dissertation is the role of the market and I mentioned that uh, yesterday an extraordinarily efficient incredibly efficient instrument for uh, allocating uh, resources it's very hard me and it has been throughout my whole adult life to see a really efficient alternative to the use of some form of competitive markets for allocating resources and setting prices. Uh, 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 but there are huge differences, you could call them ideological philosophical or whatever, on what the appropriate limits. Of that efficient mechanism are and when you should invoke well, that's what much of much of, uh, sort of political ideology in the contemporary and recent world is about what the appropriate limits are, and there are both I think normative questions there and there are empirical questions on which there are disagreements, and so uh, if I dis disagree with conservatives in some of these uh, uh, political judgments it's that I think the market as a mechanism, efficient as it is uh, and my my, uh, uh, colleague uh, Ed Lindblom has got a neat little uh, new, brand new book on uh, what he's been writing about most of his life on on the market on markets uh, is that uh, I see many more defects just as there are defects in democracy. I see many more defects in the in the market yeah, uh, in in its operation. And that would separate it. It doesn't, doesn't We may start with the same premises, but there are uh, empirical judgments of what the defects are and how important they are in, in, the, uh, in affecting the lives of people. Just
5: follow-up. I, mean, I, mean, I guess I say it more just fundamental than disagreement about, about market, market allocations. So mm. It's just simply that there are certain you know, you know, guys in the Montana militia or whatever who view it as in their self-interest not to succumb to any collective judgment by and, anyone, and And it doesn't seem to be, if we start with this, that with only the premise that people are, are, are morally equal and are the best judges of their self-interest, that there's any mechanism for suggesting that he should succumb to some collective judgments. And uh, so I think it's. A, I mean, I think it's a more fundamental question than an agreement about whether how well markets or democracy are. Okay. you've
1: okay. raised, I think, a very important point. There is, uh, I think, also an implicit judgment, but I wouldn't think. Uh, yes, I would disagree with, with, uh, with some of the guys out in Montana and Idaho on this, uh, probably, on the on the uh, uh, moral role of a majority and what's the appropriate unit for the majority. Uh, questions of, 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 of that kind. Yes, we would disagree quite fundamentally, I think, uh, on that. Though even those guys may, some of those guys may well see themselves as the, as the representatives of the true majority. And if only our beliefs would get out there, this is what the, what the majority... But I, in the end, I come out feeling that with all of its defects, uh, the majority principle... Is the, is, the, is, is the principle where when people are in disagreement and given the opportunities and, and the appropriate opportunities and in institutions including some opportunities for deliberation is the only principle by which is the only way in which these issues can be settled and I suspect that these people out in Montana are simply not prepared to accept uh, the majority now uh, raises the raises question, what does it mean by accept? What does it mean by accept? In my case, what it means is, if it's a duly enacted law that is enacted through the majority of procedures, I will accept that as legally binding on me and continue to oppose it uh, through the political process if I feel that it's an unjust or unreasonable law. Oh, whereas I think these guys... Uh, come to the conclusion if this is a law even if it represents the majority of Americans, that may or may not that is being imposed on us, we don't have to accept it and we're going to to, uh, to, to use our weapons to try in the long run to ensure that we don't have to abide by it. Does that, that make any sense to you not? all?
5: Well, I mean, I guess I'm just looking for a principle that gets us from, from, from equality to, uh, to the majority principle they, as opposed to unanimity as opposed to unanimity or, 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 as, opposed to or, uh, or as opposed to statelessness well, Right. I mean, or it, okay. it, yeah. I, mean I, I guess it's just I, I, I'm sort of focusing on a the theoretical point mm-hmm. how do we get from your, your two premises to okay any, as no as
1: that's a that's a, right? a that's a, a powerful question uh, let me just a very uh, briefly and inadequately uh, suggest where I come out on that and we could just be you know, um, uh, the problem with the unanimity principle or anything larger than the minority it actually gives the power of veto to a minority which means that the minority can then impose its will uh, a perfectly good example of that is the way that the South imposed its will on the slavery by using its veto through the whole pre-Civil War period uh, and uh, it, uh, it then becomes dominant even though yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a minority yeah. and uh, uh, I see no more reason I see less reason why a smaller number of people should have their views imposed if we don't have some external standard by which we can say that is the just view, that is the correct view if we don't have that to, to, to go by as an absolute, that we can somehow impose that standard in some political way, and I don't see how we can. Then, it seems to me, we say the majority principle, there are more people who believe this is in their interest uh, than, than not. The majority principle seems to me to be the appropriate uh, principle. And the unanimity principle, just to go back to what I said, uh, it looks fine, but the unanimity principle is actually leads to minority domination because they can impose my veto if there are positive things that need to be. Done. The absence of a state, it seems to me, is. uh, I find that the anarchist vision, appealing as it is, is is hopelessly inadequate uh, for all the reasons that we're familiar with. Among other reasons, if there were no state and there were any evil people around whatsoever who could achieve weapons and armaments and coercion. And they would very swiftly, I think, and use those to coerce the rest of the population. So you need what you would need is worldwide willingness uh, to to not to use force, but to use nothing but persuasion. And then persuasion for what? How would you then decide? Decide afterwards, and could you impose it? So the anarchist, stateless vision seems to me to be one that uh, simply is totally appealing as it sometimes is, is totally unworkable in any world of human beings, that I'm. It yeah.
6: I have a couple questions that are about political science rather than about politics. Okay. One was inspired by Fred's remark that this is the usual meeting time for our graduate students in American politics to present their work and talk about it. As somebody who's written a large number of works specifically on American politics and a large number of works that are more generally and explicitly can oh. you say something about it. How you think about American politics as a field, and what that means, and how students should think about it? I right. think
5: that's a good question. I have uh, only some, some, uh,
1: some straight thoughts on that. Uh, uh, I mean, I'll begin backwards here. Uh, when I was about uh, my, I mentioned this Smaller European Democracies Project that I was engaged in for about 10 years. It was the best set of seminars I've had in my entire life with first-rate uh, scholars from other uh, uh, the smaller the smaller democracies of Europe and so on. Uh, sometime in my late 30s, I came to the conclusion that uh, I, I knew something, not a lot, but uh, probably knew more about American politics than I knew about any, uh, any other uh, system, but that it was time that I got to learn something about other political systems so that I had some comparative framework in which to, to view it. Then in 1962, I had a year's uh, leave, and I won't say that this was the only reason for doing so, and perhaps it was more rationalization than a justifiable reason Uh, but I thought to myself uh, of course I can never uh, (laughs) succeed in emulating Tocqueville but here's a foreigner who comes to the United States and he writes maybe the best book that's ever been written about about the United States much as I disagree with some a few few parts of it so what am I going to do I'm going to spend the year in Italy writing (laughs) a textbook about American politics to try to get some perspective on it now what's the upshot of this the upshot of that is that the I think American politics is itself a gigantic, a gigantic field. I mean, we all know that. I say, what we all we all know. I think it's helpful, however. I think there, there are at least, maybe this is so self-referential that it has no significance. But let me be indulge myself and be self-referential anyway. I think there are two aspects of political science that are important to people in working in the American field, there are many. But I think to get a comparative uh, reference point, to, to see it in, in the broader context, is useful. It doesn't mean that you don't go on working in that field, but you get some slightly altered perspective on, on the system. And I'm old-fashioned enough to believe that uh, political theory, the in the sense that we use it in political science, the history of political philosophy uh, provides a perspective that uh, I think is very important in political science, general, but in general and certainly in, in, the, in giving a perspective on, on American uh, politics. I don't think there's any—I can't think of any substitute for some of the classical. Becoming, becoming familiar with some of the classical works in uh, in uh, political theory. That's not a very good answer but it's the best I can cook up at the moment.
6: At the end of that answer was actually deleted. to the second question yeah. I <laughs> wanted to ask. Okay. Okay. The, <laughs> the division of labor between normative theory that, and empirical analysis yeah. has gone too far? Does that set of specializations yes. serve yeah. us well or badly? Or what can we, no, um, um,
1: I, have, I have, again, I and this may be somewhat idiosyncratic but I don't think it needs to be Uh, I think a willingness to uh, work in and to think carefully and systematically if possible uh, both normatively in our political science use of that term and empirically is, is, is a very important and useful quality for people in American politics and comparative politics, or, or whatever. Now, um, the qualification, that I, I think, is also important to, to, to keep... It's important to me to keep the distinction clear, and readers of some of my works that I think, not always... Um, Respected my intention to keep that distinction clear. Uh, when one is in, engaged in making a normative statement and one assertion, and one is engaged in making an empirical assertion, I think the context should always be perfectly clear that what this is, this may be evaluated in this case, and this is intended at least as an empirical description if I'm wrong, suffering from my own biases and empirical and then normative. Uh, uh, commitments. Then I'm making a mistake in my empirical judgments. But I, I think we ought to keep alive. And then I want to go back to subjects of what you have said in your statement. I keep alive the uh, the, the possibility of of of, uh, of moving uh, between those two ways of thinking about. It problems so I think it's very <coughs> important to be able to do so now I find it very worrisome I sat in on after my retirement for some years on some political theory normative political theory seminars at Yale and I become I must say alarmed at the extent to which I find people in the normative theory people uh, field uh, talking to themselves That is to say, it's taking in one another's washing, uh, uh, rather than the broader (laughs) uh, uh, looking out beyond that. It. uh, I don't know whether the discussions that I attended were. uh, Don, I think you may. We may have shared some of those. Some of those sessions. I'm not quite sure. That I sometimes found as I well. I'm just repeating myself. Found it worrisome that. Uh, there's a tendency in normative theory for it to get, get very, very, very close, very tight and t- to talk to one another rather than to talk in a way that reaches out to the broader aspects of, you know, to say, empirical political science. How does that deal at all with what you were trying to pose?
6: Yeah, very much. I mean, there's been this, I think, Over the course of your career, certainly, Mm -hmm. enormous specialization, and so we've gotten very good at doing lots of smaller things. It's hard to know when
1: that's gone too far. I suppose there's almost an inevitability, given the structure of knowledge, the structure of of, uh, promotions and so on. That that happens, but it seems to me that... uh, perhaps some of the, the senior members of the profession of which you are now one whether you like it or not <laughs> have got to, uh, to, to encourage uh, the, 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 the capacity and the willingness to cross over as long as you do it carefully and respectfully of
0: what, you, what you're doing well, Fishkin's a rather interesting example. Yes, he is. He's yeah. getting a lot of free publicity. Basically. Yes, yes.
1: Yes, Fishkin was a, I don't say he was, he was never conventional, but he was, his field was political philosophy, political theory, in the normative sense. And uh, now he's, he talks empiricism, does it? Yes. I'd like to return to the
7: Michigan um, model and ask you, um, if I understand it correctly, the framers sought to expand opportunities to own land but restrict the franchise, many of them, to, to only those landowners. And um, if we provide this opportunity for, um, as you call it, in, on democracy, gaining an enlightenment understanding, if we provide this opportunity to people and they um, still choose to remain um, apathetically uninformed and ignorant,
1: are we then justified in excluding them from the franchise?
7: Excluding who? The, those who choose not to participate in these uh, yeah. polls and who yeah. who, who don't uh, make themselves
1: informed in some yes. other way and don't engage and don't, yeah. don't care. Well, it's an option that, uh, as you know, even some uh, classical uh, advocates sort of uh, Republican ideas uh, adopted. But um, the, and the, uh, my concern about that is that uh, drawing that line, deciding who is not qualified,
0: uh,
1: is very likely uh, to mean that people will be taking over the authority to act in their interests who cannot really be trusted to do so. This is the, after all, the justification you find it even in Rousseau, for heaven's sakes, as to why women should be excluded, because they weren't competent. And that we men, of course, will take adequate care of the, of the interests of these inferior uh, citizens. Well, it just wasn't true. And I think it, I think it, 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 it generally is not true. It's very, very risky, I think. For the lives of people who are excluded from the opportunity to participate, even if they don't fully participate, and participate sometimes <coughs> in an to be excluded from the political process because I do think they will know better. <laughs> often, when they're being hurt, uh, and they want to make that known, than others who aren't being hurt, but think that they know what the interests of these people are, uh, are making the decisions for them. It's not, I don't find it a very attractive history of the actions in behalf of the excluded by those who were included. How do you Whether, think children should be represented? What did uh, you say? How do you think children should be
7: represented? Right now? Yeah.
1: Right now? yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's a good, that's that's a very good question. I think we, we draw a somewhat arbitrary but not wholly arbitrary boundary. Uh, and I'm sympathetic with that, I must say. I mean, Raise children and so on that we say that at a certain point we take the risk Uh, and we used to say it was 21 it's arbitrary, now we say it's 18 some people would lower it, at which they are sufficiently, the chances are that they're sufficiently capable uh, that they can then act as citizens and below that they're not capable, and I think that's a fair judgment whether you draw it at 18, 20, 21 whatever Uh, and it's an arbitrary judgment now then the question is how should uh, uh, children be as you know Ian Shapiro in his last, in the last book it takes up that, that uh, question there should be uh, some presumptions <laughs> uh, as to what their uh, interests are and who can speak for them and the existence of, of uh, agencies that can protect above and beyond the family for example the best interests Those who know this body of law well better than I do, this whole controversial question of the best interests of the the child, that that you authorize then external uh, forces, the judiciary or others, to step in to protect the best interests of the child because your judgment is that the child cannot adequately protect his or her own interests, then then there's a cutoff point, and from there on you say, well, all right, you move beyond that, now you suffer the consequences. I'm not sure. Tell me what you think about it. Well,
7: I was just thinking that politically children are represented only by their parents, and that's no different than women being represented by their husbands.
1: Well, as you know, Ian's argument, and and, and to some extent now that does exist. There are external agencies that can move in. <clears throat> take over.
7: Those are protective;
1: they're not representative. And, and uh, tell me more about that, in what sense you mean?
7: Well, I, I would argue that many parents won't necessarily vote in the interests of their children, uh, they'll vote in the interests uh-huh. of their own uh-huh. circumstances. So you
1: might propose, I don't know what you call an ombudsman, uh, what, but somebody who was armed with the votes, yeah. who could cast the votes on behalf of the of the children. Uh, in every state for example you might have uh, two or three people who could cast the
5: votes on behalf of the children.
1: The grandparents.
5: <laughs> <laughs> well it's an interesting
1: idea. I, I, I don't know really. I think a lot about that but that's the sort of thing I like to hear. I mean I, I disagree with it. My gut reaction is that's dangerous, but but we need to be thinking in uh, in
5: creative terms that way. Congratulations.
3: Yes, uh, Stanley. This is a, a question about your conception of democracy, mm-hmm. particularly in democracy and its critics. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, there is a very sympathetic view of multi-party systems, mm-hmm. and at the same time. It, it, an absence uh, it seems to me of the notion of accountability in this case the accountability of the political classes those who most directly involved in governing to ordinary people um, I wonder if uh, I can't believe that, uh, that you don't actually want to see the views of ordinary people brought to bear on government. That seems to me very much in line with your notion of democracy. But the sympathy toward multi-party systems and and things that cloud who's responsible for what in the product of government strike me as contradictory to that general view that you take and one that we usually summer up by accountability, the, the notion that if it's clear why uh, we're in this governmental mess of some kind, uh, and usually that's done when there's a majority party that has controls the operation of government, then you can try to correct things by having elections as a mechanism that say throw the rascals out uh, you know again if we take Italy as an example where you had about seven parties at change system it's very easy to avoid any uh, such accountability now uh, is accountability something you leave out because you've thought about it and decided it's important but not that important or have I misread the corpus, or what?
1: No, I uh, Stanley, that is an excellent point. No, I strongly believe in accountability. But I am more sympathetic with multi-party systems than I think you and the most American political scientists are. That, too, there is a certain trade-off. There is a certain trade-off between in when it works ideally, which it almost never does, including the United States, uh uh, where you get a clear-cut choice between two parties, one with a record in office and the other, the opposing party with a, presumably a previous history that you can, to some extent, project from. You get that clear, clear-cut clear uh, choice. Uh, there's, there's, that simplifies greatly the problems that the electorate uh, faces. And that's the advantage, obviously, of the idealized two-party System, which now, to my knowledge, exists nowhere in the world, including the United States, and it doesn't exist any longer in Britain, has not for some for some years, uh, and in due time it may well be it's going to disappear from from Britain. We'll we see that, but uh, but that is a, that simplification of the alternatives is certainly uh, uh, an advantage of the idealized uh, two-party system. Now there. Europeans, after all, have now had many experiences, and everybody at Stanley, if I may say so, and they want to denigrate the multi-party system, they (laughs) point to Italy. What they don't point to is Sweden, Norway, Denmark, uh, the Netherlands, uh, 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 even Switzerland, uh, which are countries that work pretty well with a multi-party system. Now, there's a study, which I think I referred to there, One of the things about a multi-party system, it does make choices a little bit harder, but on the other hand, it makes them easier. These It makes them easier in the sense, here's a group of people whose uh, whose views really do conform more closely to mine, rather than this big, scattered, heterogeneous collection that may or may not represent. So in that sense, it's easier to choose. Now, the problem of accountability comes in, but I want to come back to that comes in that then the formation of the cabinet. And you you can't predict from your choice how the cabinet will turn out. It's not that kind of choice. What you can predict is that in the cabinet negotiations, in the parliamentary negotiations, these people are going to represent me. They're going to represent me, the kind of views that I hold. And they are accountable in that sense to me. Now, this study... Uh, a couple of years back, I think it was in a journal I almost never read anymore, yeah. the American Political, Political Science Review, probably it. Uh, uh, the attitudes of people on their, uh, how, um, I've forgotten what the crucial question was on their, oh, let me go back a In a multi-party system, there are fewer losers in a, real, genuine, two-party system after an election is over, if it's a close election, almost half the population are losers, and all that, more than half the population are losers. Like
3: more
1: than half. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> 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 right. <laughs> right. <laughs> Thanks, Don. and this is empirically <laughs> uh, verified in the studies, uh, in multi-party systems, a much higher proportion of the people, or, let's put it this way, a much lower proportion of the people feel themselves to be losers. Because they have representatives there. And again, the chances in the formation of a cabinet are pretty great they're going to get into the cabinet. You can't move You can't move from, I vote for this party, to the policies that are come out of the cabinet. But can you move from voting for the Republican or Democratic presidential candidate and the congressional candidate, the senatorial candidate, to the, to the policies that in the United States that are going to come out of it? I think the complexities we face... In accountability and making a reasonable choice in this country are much <laughs> worse, <laughs> much more difficult than they are in these European countries. I don't talk about I think it.
0: you actually argued that once using work of Professor Kelly's. In a, yes. You know, <laughs> I,
1: I, I think, Sam, <laughs> <so>, yes. yes. <laughs> uh, so that's why I find, find myself a bit more sympathetic with the ideas. I'd like to see it. Experimented. Let me let me uh, let me rant on just for for a few more minutes on this subject. I continue to be. I'm not so much mystified anymore, or amazed anymore, or astounded, but confounded. I guess that we go through this process, which is not required by the Constitution, of, of, uh, of redistricting. And we carve up these districts in order to get this group represented or that group represented. There's a very straightforward, simple solution to that problem, which is called proportional representation. If you want, if you want uh, blacks to be more adequately represented in proportion to their population, and if they're <coughs> going to vote as a group, PR does it. But what we do instead is to Make this kind of constituency or this kind of constituency, uh, and and this becomes we're seeing it right now. It becomes the, the quadrennial political controversy: who can beat out the other guys, outsmart the other guys in the way they carve up their the district. I, 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 I what I would like to see again experimentation. Can't we can't we give trial in the states? PR, maybe it'll have disastrous results okay, then we move back to what we have, disastrous results uh, But let's try it out let's see what would be happening, see how happy people would, people in again, uh, one of these surveys shows uh, people in uh, PR countries uh, multi-party countries, after elections, are much more contented with the outcome than, than uh, people in uh, the small number of remaining. two-party systems are. So you get greater degree of citizen satisfaction. What's more, I think a multi-party system would mobilize more voters. More people would go to the polls, knowing that they could have at least the possibility of getting somebody elected. And now they don't go to the polls because they know that it's not going Their vote isn't going to count anyway. So. Um, I'd just like to see us experiment with it at least, rather than go through this quadrennial process of creating these absurd uh, uh, districts in favor of this group or that group. I haven't won you over. I know that, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
8: on that notion, uh, coming to this as an empirical uh, political scientist, that I think that we often confuse civic participation with civic engagement sort of that anyone that we sort of assume civic engagement and that we look at people who don't vote and say, well, they don't vote because they don't want to vote. Um, and I think that, I uh, bring this back to the, the Fishkin argument. I guess I'm less impressed with Fishkin because I, it's sort of that if we assume that civic uh, engagement is the problem, that we need to get people more involved in, the process, and it's sort of that, there's a lot of empirical studies of voting that show that when you make it easier to vote—voting by mail, early voting—so sort of lowering the barriers—you actually increase the disparities that are already existing because you're just making it easier for those who are engaged uh, to to get to the polls. Participation more generally, so it seems that the real gap is on the engagement side. And the Fishkin uh, work has always struck me as somewhat elitist in saying that that this is the way, the way that we do this is that we have experts come down and inform the public, so are you thinking about any other ways to sort of improve this engagement side other than the, the Fishkin model? I know that sort of that I, I can disagree with the Fishkin process but I think that the outcome is a good one so any other ideas that you've had about, about Well,
1: of course, this is Bob Putnam's so. A great uh, concern, the social capital, uh, and uh, uh, how you build that up—what you call social engagement—and the result of which, I think Bob would probably call uh, a social capital. Uh, uh, I I agree with you. I think that's an extraordinary challenge. I don't, I don't, I don't even know that Bob really has any answers to that. I am struck, though. This is, I find slightly amusing and disturbing. That he now has this extraordinary database. You probably may know about this. That he's uh, two at least two uh, big firms. I've forgotten which they uh, which they are that have done a lot of surveys of their of their potential customers. And uh, or uh, sample surveys of potential. Uh, well, I don't know what the, what it is exactly. Uh, and uh, what they do with their time, what they do with their spare time what meetings they go to, and so on. It's a just a powerful database. And he's constructed a map of social capital of the of the 50 states, uh, which he was displaying recently. And uh, um, th- those with the highest social capital and those with the lowest social capital, meaning participation in the association life. It goes back to Tocqueville, Volume 1. And... Uh, And here on this map, what's striking is this dot in Bismarck, North Dakota. Bismarck, North Dakota, has the highest degree of social capital of any place in the United States. Uh, There, it's probably a fairly homogeneous Scandinavian-German population. They all know one another. They go to the Chamber of Commerce and so on and so on and so forth. They, They participate. The lowest social capital, this is rather depressing, is in Los Angeles. Is also the two most ethnically diverse among the two most ethnically diverse uh, cities in the state: Hawaii and uh, uh, Honolulu and uh, and uh, Los Angeles. Uh, now, Bob, I think would 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 argue that's. I mean that's that's a misfortune, <laughs> uh, but empirically speaking, it is a result of the lack of social trust. And if I can just continue to rant on at this point, I remember a conversation with a with a about-to-retire investment banker that Ann and I had at their house a couple of years ago, uh, who knows Honolulu, he's lived there 30 or 40 years, he knows it very well. And he said to me, I'm sure you know, and you've observed the harmony, the amity that exists among this great diversity of peoples here. That's one of the obvious... And very attractive things about Honolulu and Hawaii in in, in general. He said, What you may not be able to observe is that there's very little collaboration and cooperation across ethnic boundaries. Hence, the social trust, uh, the the social capital decline. The trust within, and he was concerned about the future, the economic future of, of Hawaii, if you couldn't build economic coalitions. Organizations that extended beyond and across the, the, uh, the ethnic ethnic boundaries, and I guess the reason for raising this is that that uh, how to build <laughs> in our cities, got great diversity, how to build these 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 coalitions and these associations, uh, not only within the. Ethnic boundaries, but across the board, other kinds of boundaries. I think it's one of the most challenging things that we that, uh, that we <coughs> as, as a country. I've probably wandered a long way from the original question. But, uh, yes.
9: Yes, I was intrigued by something that you said in the context of uh, defense of majoritarian against supermajoritarian. Uh, in okay. and, and something went off here so that, uh-huh. that uh, a supermajoritarian system allows a minority to impose. Yeah. on the majority um, but, but it seems like there's sort of three thoughts that occurred to me first, first is it a very specific kind of imposition. It's, it's not like a dictator imposing uh-huh. a change okay. it's uh, basically blockage uh-huh. they, they block change or they make change difficult to occur and it seems that this has two potential benefits, one of which is very paradoxical with respect to your the, the Fishkin sort of notion of um and deliberative democracy uh, the first is that it enhances stability. Supermajority systems do because you don't have you know you have all these global cycling theorems with majority systems, and so there could be a lot more uh, change that's just sort of changing and changing back and so forth in big swings uh, with majoritarian systems. And the second is sort of a consequence of that, and that is that if you have if you require a supermajority, you have to build consensus. And building consensus requires political del- deliberation and engagement and, and a lot more work. It, it, and one of, the, one of the great examples of this is uh, the, the deliberation that needs to occur in a jury that requires a supermajority compared to the kind of deliberation that would be required in a jury where you only need a majority decision and you could just take a vote right, right after the, the trial. It seems to me that there's a bit of a paradox there, mm-hmm. that, that maybe having a purely majoritarian system actually will impede political de- deliberation of the kind that, that Fishkin wants. That, uh, if you go to these uh, other systems, you get more. Well,
1: no, I think it's an interesting point. It clearly would, st- uh, clearly a supermajoritarian requirement of some kind, does stimulate the search for a broader uh, coalition or consensus. But I do go back to the, uh, the uh, uh, possibilities of, of uh, harmful uh, abuse of the minority uh, power to, to veto it. If uh, in a society in which no one is being oppressed, seriously oppressed, uh, and in which uh, the... the uh, uh, or, or if they are being oppressed, they have the resources the opportunities to get rid of their oppression that would be true but if there are some people I hate to use this this sort of old fashioned uh, language of oppression Uh, but of course I have some very obvious candidates in mind for that Uh, uh, where there is a group being oppressed Uh, then if 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 the minority that is oppressive can veto the changes then you actually have something that is very much like oppression by the state it may be even worse because it's unregulated and of course what I have in mind is the condition of African Americans uh, first uh, during the period of uh, slavery I forgot to mention the other day when we were talking about this uh, I think I'm rambling but it's relevant the last debate before 1860 in the United States Congress on the issue of slavery took place in 1790 or 1791 when Benjamin Franklin brought on behalf of the Philadelphia Quakers a petition to abolish the slave trade. Not to abolish slavery, but to abolish the slave trade. A full-scale debate on the issue of slavery took place. There was never another single debate. The Gag Rule entered in until 1860, as far as I know, there was never another debate, never another opportunity to discuss it because the South vetoed. using their minority power, <laughs> the opportunity. You just didn't get that kind of discussion. Now, you may say this is obsolete. It's a, you know, it's an out-of-date example of something that has passed and won't exist anymore. But the possibility of a privileged group using its privileged power to maintain, uh, uh, to keep changes that might enable a less privileged group from gaining some advantages is what worries me about that. But the inertial forces in any way for maintaining privilege over against deprivation are so great. So, so I don't want to add to that.
0: Okay. Silence all around. Oh, well, we seem to get at least a kind of a break period. Uh, let me say something about that, something... Uh, the, the car that's bringing the dolls back to uh, uh, North Haven actually isn't going to arrive till a little before three I couldn't jigger it to be earlier oh, okay. so I'm going to invite them up to my office which is on the second floor of Robertson Hall and has a couch and uh, it's not long enough to take a nap perhaps but uh, it's a comfortable place and, and some of you might want to just yeah, drop up. I'm sure there'll be a little break before they all get there. But we'll. But we'll. But we'll. Basically, can't. We Is it lounge?
7: Well,
0: we could do either way. Yeah. Uh, I think it might be a little more comfortable in the lounge. And, yeah. Yeah.
7: Yeah.
0: yeah a that's the way. That's the way. Something out of this good. That's- Good, so that's your next project, Elizabeth? That's your next project after the representation of children after you do your. Or is that part of your dissertation? It's in is your it? dissertation. It will be. Uh-huh. Okay. I'm,
7: I'm,
1: Are you
0: working, You're working
1: with the aren't you? Yeah,
7: yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I, I'm in-